You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with author Ian Nathan about his latest book, The Coppola's A Movie Dynasty. It is out now in hardcover and Kindle. I will have a link to where you can pick it up in the show description. Had a fantastic time talking with Mr. Nathan, and I hope you enjoy it. Obviously, I want to speak to you about your book, The Coppola's, but I want to know more about you. Can you tell me how you got into writing about films? Like many people, I, I, I grew up loving film. Um, my parents split when I was very young. And when I saw my father, he used to take me to films. It was kind of the thing we did together. And I think there was a kind of connection made somewhere in there. Some Freudian thing went on in which I sort of aligned films with a, with a great pleasure. I grew up in a time when there was no VCRs and obviously no streaming or anything like that. So you watched what was on television. And my parents were always very good at sort of building up films that were going to come on TV. And I have such a memory of them talking about, like, Dr. No will be, will be playing at Sunday afternoon. So the family had to sit down and watch Dr. No. And it was such a big deal to me. And, of course, it lived up to everything they said it was going to be. So films just became this event. And at that sort of mushroomed, mutated, if you want, into a, into a kind of obsession. No, no one tells you at school that you can write about films. You know, that's not on the list of, of jobs you should, you should be going for. You know, your careers advisor says, oh, lawyer or doctor, or if you can't do those things, then you know, go into business or something. No one ever said film critic or, or author because they, they couldn't conceive of that. And I, I went off to university and I, and I did a science degree. I did environmental biology, a completely different all the while, very obsessive films, very good at essays. So clearly I could kind of write, terrible at experiments, and terrible at the math. I just flunked all that. I was clearly going to be a terrible scientist. But I went into to the careers advisor at the, the university and said, Look, I can't do experiments. I'm an idiot. And they said, well, why have you thought about scientific publishing? Have you thought about going to that side? Because you're good with words. And I thought, well, that sounds like a good idea. And he said, well, this wise guy said, well, go and talk to the student newspaper and ask you know, get some experience about what publishing was like. And so I went up the day I, I walked, this is kind of destiny. The day I, I walked up to the student uh, newspaper and so the top floor of our student union, as I walked down the corridor towards the offices, the door slammed and this guy walked out and sort of stormed past me in, in disgust and went off the other way. And I'm like, okay. And I went in and it turns out he was the, the entertainment editor, but mainly the film critic. And he had a falling out with the editor literally moments before I arrived, apparently over a girl, the same girl. I, I never got to the bottom of the story, but there was a great deal of melodrama involved in it. And he stormed out. And the, the editor said, oh, yeah, why? I said, look, anything I can do? And he said, well, can you look after films for, for a little while? Basically, I've still got that job. I'm still holding on and I'm still looking after films on some level because I never let go once I was in. And it, it was just, it was absolutely eye-opening, not just 
yeah, you got to see movies and you got, yeah, that was all very exciting. And you got to commission and write, but just the process of publishing was, was fantastic to me that you take sort of concepts and they, they grow into a finished article. I mean, it was like a student newspaper, it's a weekly thing. It was, I, I was at Cardiff and it was called Gaerith, which is Welsh for free word. And that year, we that newspaper won uh, the Guardian Newspaper Student Awards um, for the best student newspaper. So we all got a little bit of a lift from that. And I, uh, I kind of knew uh, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to write about film. I wanted to publish about film. I wanted to be involved in magazines or newspapers and with film as my subject, bring the kind of two parts of my life together. I had no idea how. I had to kind of invent it. And there was a kind of long period of getting into screenings and writing for local newspapers and radio and all little bits and pieces and having jobs on the side, all those kind of things. And so I got onto a magazine called Empire, which is a, a big magazine in the UK, big movie magazine. And I came in at a really lowly level staff writer. And I began by doing a few reviews and a few bits and pieces. And I did, tended to do things like the quiz page and the letters page, all the kind of things at the bottom rung. But I worked my way up and it happened very quickly. It had a sort of change of personnel. Again, fate plays its part in life if you look backwards. And I, this kind of like guy's left and the editor left and a new editor. So within a year, I was reviews editor. And within six months after that, I was features editor. I thought this is ridiculous. This kind of stratospheric rise. A lot of it was circumstance rather than my amazing talent. But obviously, I was competent and I was good at getting on with the system. I was good at being part of the magazine. And within three years, uh, I was editor, uh, which was the like, as they, my publisher kept telling me, you're the fastest ever in the company history. You're the youngest. And I'd be like, can you just lay off on all the kind of superlatives? Because you're putting a lot of pressure on me now. But I stayed with Empire for, for 20 years, different levels. I sort of came, I, I was no longer editor after about four years, and I came back and did other bits and pieces as executive editor. But it was a large part of my life and still is. You know, I still contribute. But um, books were always kind of there on the horizon. And I kind of knew that at some point I would have to not be a full-time magazine person. You know, they needed younger blood and the digital age arrived. And I think they needed different thinking. And so I began writing books while I was still at Empire. Uh, you know, sort of, uh, they came to us, actually. And they, they, there was guys, the publisher wanted to do a book called Alien Vault. I don't know if you know it. Um, it's a book I wrote on on Alien, but they were looking for an expert on on the films. That was my little, you know, or part of my little world in Empire. I always did the kind of the Alien movies, so that fell to me. And that, yeah, you know, books are strange. They kind of books begat books. Once you've done one, sort of others happen. I often get asked, oh, "How did you get into? How did you do it? Do you have an agent?" I don't have an agent because I've never really needed one. Perhaps I should. I, I, I wonder why. <laughs> Maybe I should get much more money and I'll be a rich man. But I haven't figured that out yet. But yeah, and it, it just grew. And I, eventually I left Empire and knowing I was going to do books and different books have come and gone and some books have been more successful than others. But I found this little world in which I occupy and it's great. I mean, it's incredibly hard work and it's full of frustrations. And uh, you spend a lot of time literally here at your computer. And so I, I was telling everybody, yeah, I've been on lockdown for about six years. So I don't know what everyone's complaining about. I've been not seeing anybody else you know, for at least six years, but um, it's no, it's been fantastic. I can't complain. And I still, because I, I do bits for Empire and I do a radio show every week on the new film. So I still get out there and see the, the new ones and keep the current stuff going on. Yeah, your desk looks very much like my desk. I've got 
the the piles of DVDs and Blu-rays. Honestly, is, I don't know if I can sort of sweep you around. Look, there's just piles everywhere. Any minute that is going to topple in on me. I like to think it's like an old wizard's desk. You know, there's kind of files and sort of potions all around me. So I know you've written about Alien. You also even wrote about Ridley Scott, which is nice. Yeah, that was fantastic. Once you're at a publisher, often you, you start discussing what subjects you want to do. And in fact, they were talking about doing Ridley Scott in, in a nice sort of, um, sort of coffee table format. And I said, look, yeah, I, I've worshipped the Ridley Scott altar, you know, my whole film going life. I saw, you know, a lot of my deep passion for film and my sort of need to interrogate film comes back from the, when I first saw Blade Runner and you know, I forced my mum to take me because I was about 12 because it had Han Solo in it. And that's the reason I wanted to go. And it was a science fiction film with Han Solo. So I had to go and see it. And if I didn't go and see it soon, I was not going to talk to anyone. Or So she had to take me along and I didn't really get it, uh, but it just haunted me. And it's haunted me ever since. And I still don't think I quite get it, but that's kind of Blade Runner and it stayed with me. And then my, I think that's the first time I really understood that a director's style was at work. I really appreciated the idea there's an author behind the story and he will tell that story in a certain way. And that made me conceive of film in a slightly different way. I was like, Ridley Scott tells it like that. What do other directors, you know, tell them like, you know, what does Spielberg do? You know, what is his handwriting? And I began to sort of conceive of film in, in a different way. So writing about Ridley Scott, it was almost like a fulfillment of something and sort of going back. And I've met him, yeah, at least 10, 15 times over my career. And he's, he's Ridley Scott. You know, he's, he's a kind of old northerner, you know, with a very stoic, sort of pragmatic, no shit take on you know, the world of celebrity and movies. So you have to sort of chip away at him. Um, I always found it's, it's, it's better to sort of go in on a kind of thematic technical side rather than the career. because He doesn't care about his elevated level in, in film or how he's deified, but he'll talk to you about why he did certain things in films. And that's a good way to go in with him. And yeah, it, it came out and it's done very well as a book. And I, I was very pleased with it. It's, it's quite a challenge because you hit the kind of, you hit the alien blade runner moment. And there's so much to talk about and it's so rich and you get the gladiator and Thelma and Louise, it does slow down a little bit in the second half of the career. You, you get a kind of an era when he was making very competent, stylish films, but they weren't really sort of landing, sort of Body of Lies and Robin Hood. And it's hard to get as excited about those films. But in a way, that's that's part of your challenge. You're doing a career. It's it's the other films almost that, that are, are more interesting because what do they say about him? Because we know Alien and Blade Runner and Gladiator and The Martian. You've definitely have written about people with very, let's say, strong, loud cinematic voices. You know, your Coen brothers, Tim Burton, Peter Jackson, Francis Ford Coppola. I mean, all of these folks have very, very distinctive takes on things. I mean, when you look at a Coen brothers movie, you know, it's a Coen brothers movie. Same thing, Tim Burton, Peter Jackson, etc. It's just some very, very interesting folks that you've written about. Again, it's it, it's partly, obviously, they're the ones you want to write about because they're the ones who speak to you and they are very such. It's interesting you say about yeah, having a, a strong voice. I, I think in terms of, you know, if you ask a publishing question, what makes a good film book? Your subject matter has to have a strong voice, uh, filmically and almost personality as well, because you've got to marry those those two things together. The, who is the person and what, are his, what is his art like or her art like? 
Um, so there's only certain, actually, the, the kind of market and possibility of film books is narrower than you might think. No offense, you know, to, to lovers of J.J. Abrams, and you know, I've enjoyed his films, some more than others, but he, he wouldn't necessarily make a great film book at this stage of his career. There's not quite enough to sort of get hold of. You need, obviously, you need a body of work, but yeah, like you said, you need that distinctiveness, you need that voice. And you need sort of a, a sense of a life as well. Um, Peter Jackson is very interesting because he's obviously very different. He's a Kiwi and he, he's got a, that kind of sensibility where he, he really blows it all off and he just wants to be, he's a geek, you know, and he wants to talk about things like a geek. Um, but at times you have to almost sort of pull it out of him a little bit. He's a bit too humble and you have to go, come on, Pete, you know, liven it up a bit. You know, it's going to, you, you've done pretty well. That's going to, that's going to get into that. And so that each of them, offer very different challenges. So why the Coppola's and why Sophia and Francis? I would like to say it's kind of this kind of, kind of grand mission I've always wanted to do. And to a certain extent, I, I have wanted to write about a more a more historical figure in a sense. And I, you know, obviously Francis is still with us and you know, he's hopefully going to make Megalopolis soon and, and all those those kind of things. But I, all the drugs I'd done were, were sort of started either in the 80s or the 90s. And I'd grown up with them. They were my directors of, of my film going era. But I wanted to do someone who sort of just predated that. So I could sort of look at it a little bit more historically. I mean, there was a practical thing. Godfather is 50 years old this year. Uh, anniversary was coming along. It was a good time to sort of do a Coppola's book. That always factors. When you're discussing with your publishers which subjects you want to do, they'll look at the market. They, a lot of how we publish is with foreign sales are very important to the kind of business model. So it's not just about America and the UK, it's about Spain and France and even China and Japan and, and sort of further afield. So you've got to think about all those. So they discuss with their foreign agents and you, know, so you sort of stick a finger in the air and say, well, what's, what wind is blowing well? And you know, Quentin and Wes, and I, those two were very much in their moment. And it was very clear from the market People wanted a Wes Anderson book. They wanted a Quentin Tarantino book because there wasn't many around, funnily enough. Um, with the Coppola's, it, there was a sense of that. We weren't quite as certain. And we were changing format. We weren't going to do a big coffee table type book. We were going to do very much a biography type book. And I think that's where we decided, rather than just do Francis alone and do a Francis book, because there's, there's a few out there and very good ones. And he's been written about a lot because he's a very legendary figure in the business. You know, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, you know, all those kind of great, you know, uh, filmic tomes are out there. There hadn't been a book about the family uh, as a whole. And essentially the family, you know, in terms of directors, is the backbone is Francis into Sophia. And one of the themes I immediately sort of sprang upon was the fact that right now, Sophia is the bigger coppola. She is the better known Coppola. And what, how did that come about? And what, what went on? So I wanted to tell this kind of sort of this story where he comes along and has this incredible moment. And then to a certain extent, not fades, but moves into the background a bit. He's no longer making Godfathers and Apocalypse Nows. And Sophia, who's very different, comes into the foreground. So if I could, I mean, we wanted to frame that as sort of a father-daughter story, but also it was clear it was a family story. So you have Eleanor and you have you know, Talia Shire, Nicolas Cage. You have this kind of whole saga, really, in front of you. I mean, it was it would have been a huge, huge book if we'd done everybody at the detailed level I was going to do, Francis and Sophia, and we sort of drew back from that. They were taking years. I mean, Nicolas Cage, Nicolas Cage alone is his own story, yeah. 
<laughs> so, so a lot of those kind of got reduced to smaller entries, Jason Schwartzman. But they, they're, they're, they are very present. And that idea of family became an important theme. I mean, it gives itself to you, doesn't it? I mean, he's made The Godfather, which is a family story. So it, it, it's kind of there. And so you want to go, well, I want to tell a, a family story. And that changed the way I went about it because it became much more about, you know, the films were there and the films give you the, the timeline of, of events. But there is this idea of the people moving along as well. Whereas with books like Ridley Scott, you're, you're, you're very film by film. You're doing and this film and that film and that, that film. Whereas with Coppola, there, there was a, well, the Coppola's, there was a chance to have bits in between and have bits of life that kind of glued the films together. Um, so it's, it's, it's perhaps, I would say, a more personal book in, in that sense. But it was very smart that you actually have the family tree in the beginning of it. You know, the whole idea of the relationship with Carmine and, you know, oh, my God, that story of how Francis uh, pulled a prank on him with the oh, telegraph. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, <laughs> that was terrible. You can just feel the heartbreak, the grief of it. And I, and I feel that what was so interesting was those events. What you're looking for is, is, is the things that shape people and. And you thought that must have had a huge effect on their relationship, on his sense of the world, Francis, your father to son. And on the whole idea of, I think you can feel Carmine's sense of he'd never quite made it. You know, he'd never quite done it. And how that kind of had fallen on the family a bit. They were always, that was always something that was there in the, in the family home that daddy hadn't. And he, he did extraordinary things, but his view of himself was, I've not done it. And he was sort of jealous of, of the world around him. And I think that put a weight on certainly the, the two sons. And I think a lot of what Francis was doing, it was showing his dad in a way. And he brought his dad to Hollywood, you know, to, to be a composer. So he sort of made up for it, that, you know, the terrible prank, you know, of, of, of pretending, sending a telegram, a, a made up telegram from to Paramount Pictures, wherever it was saying, inviting his father to come and do, score a film. <laughs> And it was so accurate that Carmen believed it. And to come home and have to go, no, Dad, it was a prank. Oh, man. I wouldn't want to be in that house on that night. It's so in-depth and so rich. There are a lot of stories that I had never actually heard before. So I was so glad that you were able to dig deep and present that and give so much great background his relationship with corman the uh those early films i mean a lot of that stuff just gets glossed over it almost feels like he is in full when the godfather hits but it's like no there's a lot of stuff before that yeah absolutely everyone's i mean easy riders raging bulls sort of um set a format for any discussion of the 1970s and that those those directors and we all think about that they all sort of turned up together and began partying and making their great films and taking over the studios and it all happened at once and I, there was a lot of that but really the truth is francis came a lot earlier to to hollywood I mean, he, he met jack warner he, he when he worked at, at warner brothers and so he was already established he was the first wave i think the others like bogdanovich was first wave you know, three kin was was first wave but the spielbergs and scorseses and de palmas were second wave so he has that as you're absolutely right he has this history that sort of predates the, the 1970s which is very interesting because in a sense he's he's, he's sort of john the baptist he's setting it all up for everyone he, He's laying down, you know, the, the roots for for all these Christ figures to turn up and and do their do their thing, their new gospel. He he sort of you know because he he broke so many rules 
and got away with it, began chipping away at the, you know, the, the studio system. You, you think about Rain People, and Rain People is, you know, it's a strange film, uh, but it's made in a way that films have never been made, you know, freewheeling. They went out with very little money and sort of drove around America to make this road movie and made it on the hoof, basically. Coppola with his filmmaking family driving around America turned up back to Warner Brothers with this sort of strange film about a, a lonely pregnant woman who goes on the run. But he was starting to sort of put down the stamp of what that era would want to do, challenging films about people. The fascinating and contrary element, and, and what's so beautiful about writing about Coppola, is everything is contradictions, and, and that great artists are all contradictions, is, is the film that essentially cracks the dam and changes Hollywood, is the one he doesn't want to make. It's the one he thinks is the, is the boring studio project that he's got to do to pay his debts, and that's The Godfather. Yeah. He kicked and screamed in, you know, into doing that. But that's that's kind of that says I think something about him more than the era in a way that he almost needs to be opposed to his material to do his best work. He needs to be at war with what's going on for it to, to make sense. Yeah, he, he's one of those directors where the friction is is important. And actually, and what's so interesting is that Sophie is the complete opposite. She just wants harmony. They don't even say action on Sophia's sets. They want such calm. It's like, right, let's just, let's just go proceed. Let's cameras roll. Whereas, you know, she must have sort of been grown up on all these sets where it was nothing but fire and brimstone then, and seen it. I'm not going to make films like that. Not like my dad does. Having nervous breakdowns, you know, halfway through his films all the time. But uh, I always love that he's such a dreamer, the whole idea of American Zoetrope and just what it, what he wanted it to be. And how he gets close to it and it falls apart and he still wants to do it. And just big, big dreams. Everything has to be big for Coppola. And I love that. Yes. I, I mean, he's hugely expansive as a personality. And, and, he, and he had this kind of theatrical tradition. Um, you know, he'd been to, to, to university and studied theater. And had a great idea about, you know, he was putting on shows. And it, you know, he was the great director and putting on these kind of huge shows. And he took that sensibility to, to, to Hollywood with him. But it's those contradictions, again, he, he's, he's the personal artist who wants to tell family stories, you know, like Rain People. Copper is one guy who wants to tell these small personal stories. He doesn't want to make big studio films. He doesn't want to make The Godfather. Yet at the same time, he has a part of him that is pure mogul, that is you know, Cecil B. DeMille or it's Jack Warner or it's Louis B. Mayer. He has that in him. He wants to run a studio. He wants to define the industry rather than just be part of it. And that's zoetrope. And it's this extraordinary dream. And it's this kind of idea of artistic freedom. And he really bought into the era he, he bought into the beat poets and you know, he bought into Andy Warhol and this idea that these kind of artistic communities and his families. You know, he wanted to surround himself with like-minded people and they would just get together and make these incredible films and there'd be no rules and it would be the most exciting time. And it really was that first year of Zoetrope. It's just fantastic. You know, they just, uh, there's a wonderful documentary about it. I don't know if you've seen it. You can find it on YouTube in which they, they, they interview everybody and, and, yeah, they, they literally kind of had parties. They wouldn't know who these people were at the parties. And there was kind of out-of-work directors sleeping under desks. It was just a, a kind of commune that Coppola had set up in San Francisco. The problem is, is that he was no good with money. The money would just disappear. He didn't rationalize that you had to kind of you know, work this out, you know, economize to, to make this. He just bought the equipment. I thought, it'll be fine. It'll all be fine somewhere down the line. It'll catch up with him. 
And it didn't, you know, it, it became a problem. And obviously, THX 1138 and all the, the things that happened in the George Lucas film and lost tons of money. And you end up at the point where his zoetrope deem is falling apart at that stage. He has to do The Godfather. And of course, The Godfather, you know, it's this masterpiece and it invents him as a director and still launches that part of his career. But you're right, he keeps coming back to the zoetrope dream. And the idea of owning his own studio, but it keeps bringing him down. It's 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 great folly in a way. He, he, yeah, he to keep trying to do that. And I don't think he ever quite rationalised sort of the pragmatism of business. Okay. Uh, he didn't have a business head, and that idea that in the end the studios get something right that he doesn't get right is that they understand money and they understand how how money works in America, and all he wants to do is spend money. And that's great because you, you, you get Apocalypse Now and you get these extraordinary films. But that's not great if you're you know, his accountant going, Francis, you've got to rein it in. I love the, the point where he made One from the Heart, where he owned his own studio property. So literally at a physical studio in, in Hollywood. And he was running that studio. He was also making One from the Heart. So you have this point in his career where Francis Ford Coppola, the studio head, had to control the spending of Francis Ford Coppola, the director. And this is kind of the worst equation possible because yeah, neither of them were listening to each other. And one went off and spent all the money and one couldn't control the other one. And it, one from the heart didn't make any money, it cost too much. And the studio fell apart. Again, he goes big. You know, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to do a musical. I'm going to have it all set bound. I'll have it just, you know, saturated with neon. I'll get weights and Crystal Gale in here to do all this. I mean, it's just such a, a, a he's rolling the dice big time. He's got it all on one number and just throws those. And it's almost spectacular to see how bad it fails sometimes. And that, that story, you look at one from the heart, and it's a story of just a couple falling apart and coming back together. It's a relationship film. It should be the, it should be the scale of like a Woody Allen film. It should be. But yeah, he, yeah, you're right. He had to build his own Vegas. He couldn't even shoot in Vegas because it wasn't fake enough. He had to go build his own Vegas with this color scheme where the lights represented things. And it's kind of a musical, but not a musical because the, the songs are a narrative or a narration that sort of come over the top of it. I mean, brilliant ideas. And you know, I have a lot of time for it as, as a film. It's, it's wonderful to look at. But you look at it and go, why? Why, why are you spending this much? This, this could have worked at a smaller level better for your for your studio but that you're right he, he couldn't he's incapable of, of thinking small certainly at that stage he couldn't do it that way because as soon as the opportunity came he was going to change the industry every time he did something he was going to change the industry with it because he you know he was he was a pioneer he, he was a pioneering spirit it is amazing that sophia decided to go into the family business after seeing all of the struggles that her father went through after the way that she was lambasted for her role in Godfather three and people are screaming nepotism, no talent. And then when she starts hitting with her directorial films, it's like, who is this person? Again, it feels like, you know, this amazing artist just fully formed, just hits the scene. Sophie is very interesting. She did resist being a director for a while. She was conscious of the daddy's girl lines. She knew that she would be criticised. I think she was very wary creatively because you're absolutely right. She watched her father's turmoil over the years. I mean, he'd always taken his family to the sets and they grew up on the sets. I mean, quite literally, she was out in the Philippines for Apocalypse Now, running around, going to the local schools. So there was this sense in her, I think, that 
it was too cliched and too obvious to become the director. But it was there. It was bubbling away inside. I mean, it was there genetically. I think, you know, she had her, her father in her and her mother in her as well. Her mother was an artist and much calmer uh, as a personality. And her brothers, you know, they'd wanted to go into filmmaking as well. Roman and Gio. Sadly, Gio died, but they were both aiming to be, you know, filmmakers and Talia. And so the, the family were there. So you couldn't escape it in, in a way. And she said, you know, I grew up and I would come home from school and Akira Kurosawa would be coming around for dinner. So <laughs> that, was, that was my life. Werner Herzog would, would just turn up in the kitchen. So directors were everywhere. And, but it was a book. It was the Virgin Suicides book. And it was I think almost the right thing happened is that she knew she could tell that story. I didn't think, oh, I want to be a director. I thought, I can tell this story. I understand the story. The story communicates to me. And so I have a vision for it. And that's what turned her into a director. It was understanding what the material needed. It wasn't, oh, I'm a Coppola. Oh, yeah, this is the, my destiny. It was literally, I can do this film. I, I can tell this story. But I need to tell this story. And she got help from her dad and, and various things happened. And it was a, but he shot left on her own and she did it. And I think that, you know, once she'd made the version Suicide and proved to herself that I'm my own person with my own style, then you know, it comes together. And in Lost in Translation, she, she sort of has this apotheosis and she's, she, she's an auteur already in, in her second film. She, she's actually sort of there. But I think it took, a, it took a long while to get over that, that sort of difficulty of being who she was. And she went through all these phases of you know, an actress, a photographer, fashion designer, and, and sort of went around the houses a little bit before version suicides came along and, and defined who she would be in the way, in a sense, that the Godfather eventually defined who, who, who Coppola was. Even though some of her films can have a very long reach, like a Marie Antoinette, uh, the Bling Ring, some of these, they still feel smaller. You can feel that control, which I appreciate. It doesn't feel like she's reaching out to conquer the world. She wants to tell just smaller stories, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, she, she's an ex- incredibly different filmmaker to her father, um, not just in terms of what she does, but in terms of how she does it, the, the style. Um, she, uh, she she likes calm. Again, she's seen the battlefields of her father. and She likes calm, Sophia, and I think she has her mother's personality, that, that sort of that need for harmony in the world, whereas Francis needs friction. And... I think she, she knows setting out, she knows what story she's telling you know, beforehand. Even though there is freewheeling elements to it with, with, with Lost in Translation, there's a sense of them making it you know, in a French New Wave style. Just get out in the streets with very small cameras and shoot what you can. But she knew the sensibility and she knew the, you know, the arc that story would have to take. Because it's kind of her story a little bit. So she, she knew that. And in a way, and it, I put this in the book, all her films, I think, to touch on biography with her, perhaps more than Francis is doing on him. Some of them do. But I think her, she is to a degree, and you know, there are films about hotels and loneliness and being you know, and celebrity and Hollywood and being a little lost. And I think that's her. I, I think you know, all those things echo her. So I think she knows what she's setting out to do with each film in a way that Francis... You know, when he set out to make Apocalypse Now, I think he had an idea where, you know, what the themes and then the scale, but he was making it up as he went along. It was a kind of 
even when they got back to the edit suite after Apocalypse Now, they, they, they all this footage, they hadn't got a film. They had to kind of chip away at it, like, like it's giant sculpture to find the film. Um, and that's Francis. Uh, yeah, he is he's the kind of artist that goes in there and just picks all the paint across the canvas and slowly something forms. Although, to be fair, that The Godfather is a very controlled piece of filmmaking. So, I don't want to say they're all like that. Um, but with Sophia, it, she, she's very under control. She's very clear when, when she sets out what story she's telling. And I think she deliberately chooses uh, worlds and pieces that fit that, uh, you know. On the Rocks, which I think is a delightful film. It's a very small film you know, about a father and a daughter. So obviously it resonates with, with her own life. But uh, I think she'll look at that and go, I, I, that's enough for me. Sophia doesn't need the biggest canvas, you know, the largest production in the world to, to make sense of, of, of her talent. I think she likes the micro very much. How did you go about doing your research for this one? There's, I mean, it's very different. There was obviously we were in the middle of a pandemic, which didn't make life easy, and and sort of uh, there was sort of getting hold of people and things was quite complicated. Thankfully, a lot of the big film libraries, especially the ones in in America, sort of during the pandemic opened up a digital sort of way of of accessing certainly articles you could get to. So that was very useful. So I could sort of go in and get put in Apocalypse Now and get all these old reports and old reviews and news stories. I find it's very good to get uh, material that was written at the time. You know, there's a lot of material written retrospectively, and that's all great, and you can find the biographies and then use them. But I think you want to get a feel for what was going on yeah, and the immediacy of things. You need to, to read the newspaper reports and reviews and interviews that were written there and then. So that's what I went looking for, especially when you're doing – as films as familiar as The Godfather and Apocalypse Now, you, you know, you need, you've got to try and bring something new to it. And one of my stylistic endeavours um, was to try and make it immediate. And so I use the uh, present tense quite a lot to put you in to the moment of making The Godfather rather than sort of sitting back with that kind of, oh, now we're dealing with the masterpiece, you know, it's kind of grand, kind of, well, it all happened like this once upon a time. I want it to be like straight away you're, you're thrown into the middle of apocalypse now and, and you sort of sense it around you because that I think is, is sort of what they were like when they were made. And, and I like that style. I like that idea of bringing a, a film biography closer to a novel where you have a, because you know, filmmaking can be very exciting, it can be very dull, but at the same time it can be very exciting. And, and I like to bring that to life. I like anecdotal books more than I like analytical books. You bring the analysis in and make your points. But I think when you're tackling The Godfather, it's just great stories. It's great. It's fabulous stories about Robert Evans and Paramount and the, the Nightmare Shoot. It's fabulous stories just about Brando and, and, and all those sort of things. But of course, you've got to keep you know, the centre is always is Coppola and what he was going through and that that becomes the path. But yeah, in terms of research, it really was about sort of almost taking a time machine and going back and getting all the newspapers of then, which was a bit tricky, but I, I, I thankfully got, got to do it. I ask you what your biggest challenge was, but I imagine the pandemic probably was uh, quite a roadblock at times. Yeah, I mean, for everybody. I, I, I wasn't a special case. We were all you know, up against it with that. And, yeah, you know, I, I, I've liked to travel sometimes with my books. and I would have liked to have gone to San Francisco and I'd like to have gone to the immediacy of that and gone to the libraries and 
and and got a, a, that kind of sense. Uh, that was obviously off off the table, so I had to do it slightly differently. Um, for me, the challenge, and it's often this, it's I'm always intimidated when you go in and you're, you're, you've got the Godfather in front of you, or, or Apocalypse Now in front of you, or Alien or Blade Runner right in front of you. And immediately I think, well, everybody knows everything. And it, these being films just are the best known films in history. You know, how do you bring anything new to that? And what should you bring as new? Because you've got to tell the same stories. You've got to get into the because they are the things that actually happened. You can't avoid them. So that that was that was kind of the biggest challenge, I, I think. It was being confronted with you know, masterpieces and stripping away some of the, the kind of grandiosity of, of that and finding the real film, but also bringing hopefully uh, a new texture and perspective to those films that people will enjoy. And that bottom line is you, you're making a book you hope will be very readable and exciting so that people will want to read it. And so that's your challenge as well. It doesn't get too bogged down. And there's so much, there's so much that goes on in Coppola's life. And I only had so many pages. You know, there are limits to what the publishers will let you do. So there's another huge challenge is what you don't put in is what you you, you leave at the margins. So I I did it. and it, Hopefully, I, I, I like to think I had a kind of slightly cinematic style where I do these sort of jump cuts where you would do we're on the set of Apocalypse Now. You jump up to Cannes, and you know, sort of two years have been lost in the middle there somewhere, and you sort of you know curl back into that. So you give it a, a, a kind of forward momentum. Will there be a uh, version the Coppola is a novel for television? Yeah, I mean, there, there is a, there's a the um, there is a television series about the making of the godfather isn't there called the offer that's that's being made and there was going to be a movie as well uh barry levinson's going to do a version i don't know what's happened to that or telling the same story so certainly yeah, they're already doing it i mean his you could do an amazing mini series on, on on the life of that family just the kind of the kind of chaos and, and he's such a compelling figure to have in the middle of it and and what he put his family through is just i've gambled everything again on a studio yeah all our homes yeah, poor old ellen i must be thinking what now but she must have understood him i think and and thought well he, this is who he is this is what's got to happen otherwise he won't he won't be who he is but she put up with a lot eleanor in fact she's she's kind of my hero in it I, um, I was told by another writer long ago and given advice in any book you write find your hero and it might be the central character. And even though you're writing about Francis, your hero doesn't necessarily have to be Francis. And my hero was Eleanor. And I wanted her to be this kind of voice of reason uh, in, amid the chaos and a bit of sadness, you know, melancholy as well that she, she brings to the story. Uh, even when she's, I, I love that story that she was sort of driving in to um, promote Godfather three with her daughter. And she was left behind in a hotel room. And now it's her daughter abandoning her and she's sort of a bit like this is happening again and and i think there's a lot of her in lost in translation you know, the idea of hotels and being left on your own by your husband who's off doing something i think that's her mother as well as herself in, in that film just sort of an echo of it because i think she would have seen it sophia her mother's loneliness i think that's one of her themes so what's next for you what are you working on now life life moves on at very quick pace uh, i've already filed another book uh, on James Cameron, which is which is a wonderful, wonderful subject. There's, I, mean, I know there's a very big book out on him right now called um, Tech Noir, um, but there's not a huge amount that's written about Cameron. Uh, I did a Terminator book a while ago, um, and his is a fantastic story. I mean, he's the most successful artist of all time. 
So I figured out. I mean, I know we can't really put a value on the Mona Lisa or maybe you know, the Sistine Chapel. They're hard to kind of quantify in financial terms. But if you set that aside, he is the most successful artist who's ever lived in any medium, <laughs> film, TV. I mean, he's an industry unto himself. And that's incredible. But in the story of his films, you know, they are Cameron films in, in their own way. They are you know, the abyss. You, know, you can, that telly movie, the making of the abyss would be an amazing telly movie. So that was that was just fantastic. Yeah, you know, I, I opened the abyss chapter. You sort of cut into the abyss chapter when he and he's nearly dying. He's at the bottom of a tank and he's run out of oxygen and he, and he's sort of trying to make it. You know, trying to a flow and go. He ditches the rig and kicks for the surface about uh, 35, 40 feet above in this huge tank. And halfway up, the safety diver gets hold of him, seeing his panic, and puts the respirator in Cameron's mouth, and it's faulty respirator. And Cameron breathes in water. And he panics. He's trying to fight this guy. And it's incredible. And the, the guy thinks he's just panicking and holds him ever tighter. Cameron punches the safety diver and breaks free, gets to the surface, about to black out, makes it to the surface, blow and go. And initially, the first thing he does is fire the safety diver and fire the first AD. He forgot to tell him his tank was emptying. An hour later, he's back at the bottom of the tank. I mean, his story is just, you know, the, the drive and will. Is, is was just incredible. So I, I really enjoyed that. And, and I think I've written a, a very exciting book because it just is, is an exciting story. After that, I have a series of books, which is the, the Quentin Tarantino, Wes Anderson, Guillermo del Toro. There's, there's a series of monographs done in a, in a stylish way. I'm just finishing Christopher Nolan for that series. And he's been hard, hard, because, I mean, if you try and describe a Christopher Nolan plot, you know, put it down on paper. It's so different. You can, they're easier to watch than they are described. You know, what is going on in Inception? What is going on? What is going on in The Dark Knight? Literally in plot terms, what is going on? It's really complicated. Well, there's Harvey Dent and you know, he's doing this and Batman wants to sort of leave the scene and he's, Harvey Dent is supporting, but the Joker is doing this and all this is going on. And you're like, what? That has been a, a big challenge. It's been a big challenge just to do the, the simple things, like describe the films. Honestly, Tenet. Describing Tenet, I don't lie down in a darkened room. But I have to say, and, and thank God for YouTube, because there are these guys on YouTube who have worked out Tenet. And they're really good. They're just kind of videos. And they, they take you through it very calmly and slowly with graphs and blotting maps and things. And I thought I didn't quite get it, but they were like, right, in the future, this happens. And they're sending this back and this happens. And the timeline does this. But why does one guy come out when the other guy goes in? Why does that have to happen? So that, that's coming to an end. So just now I'm doing the editing and uh, sort of introductions and bits for, for Christopher Nolan. Then there'll be a break because I've done three books in a row and I, and I need a bit of a break. And after that, I've got a few pitches out there and we're talking, my publisher's talking again of a possibility of maybe David Lynch, which again is, is a bit mind boggling and how I might go about doing David Lynch. Just starting to try and think about that and what that might be like. And after that, I, I, I don't know. I think there'll be another one in the series of, of Wes Anderson and, and Quentin. I think we'll do another one of those. We'll come up with another thing. Yeah, you know, I will run out of directors. I, I also... You know, I have a, a, a kind of passion to do something a bit more historical. That might be a bit different. You know, I've been quite successful at what I do, but I'd love to write a book about Berlin in the 1920s and that crazy time about, you know, when they invented all the genres, you know, Fritz Lang and, you know, all those guys there were inventing modern cinema. 
Meanwhile, it's it's a great ticking bomb story because Hitler's coming and he's about to blow it all apart. They're all going to have to run away and then flee to Hollywood. Essentially, reinventing Hollywood when they get there. And you know, Billy Wilders and Murnau's and all those guys. And it's just an incredible story of of a moment and a city, and you know, history and 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 sort of film. But I haven't sort of got my pitch quite quite there yet. You know, I want to go in and go. Look, you get movies and Nazis. Yeah, you know, this is going to sell this book. <laughs> That's the one thing from that Babylon Berlin show where I'm just like, no, no, just focus on the filmmakers. That's what I want. Yeah, to yeah, see. yeah. And it's something I had the great idea. The city itself was like a film noir. It was like it was it was self. It was this kind of nighttime, and it's kind of world of nightclubs and decadence, and all that's there. And uh, and it's just, it just the stories are amazing. These are the silent era, and you know, Dietrich and Garbo, and everybody came through Berlin. Hitchcock was there. Eisenstein came through. They, they all seemed to sort of come to Berlin and then sort of go again. So for that ten years, it was the epicenter of filmmaking because in Hollywood, it was Chaplin was sort of beginning and they were sort of finding their feet, but it wasn't yet thriving. It was still sort of starting. But in in Berlin. They called it the fastest city in the world at the time. And I wanted to use that as my title, the fastest city in the world. But um, it's, it's, it's sort of a passion project of mine. And I haven't sort of figured out you know, how I tell that story. How do you write about 10 years in a city and lots of, lots of you know, multiple characters rather than just one? There's all sorts of challenges involved in it. Um, but that's hopefully something I can do someday. I, I will come to it. And I, I've watched all Babylon Berlin because I wanted the inspiration from it. And I've been reading all these sort of Berlin novels and it just gets more exciting, more daunting every time I sort of step into it. Like, oh, my word. How do, how do I how do I do all this? Yeah. Just working out how the Nazis worked and how that all came about is really complicated. You know, Lini Riefenstahl and when she came along and oh, I'm feeling chills already. Yeah. <laughs> the nightmare of it. But yes, so uh, that, that's the idea. Hopefully at some point I can just veer off and do something slightly different. But uh, yeah, like, like all things, yeah. You go where the work takes you as well. I'm a writer. Uh, I need to keep working. I need to pay my bills. So every time a publisher comes along, goes, well, can you, we really want to do a Christopher Nolan for next Christmas. You can't really say no. And you, and you want to keep your, your books going. So, yeah, there's, there's always a pragmatic element. Francis never understood this. You know, there's, a, there's a pragmatic thing. You've got to pay your bills. You've got to do your job. You know, he'd be off doing his Berlin project. I'm still working on my Berlin project. You know, and it's getting bigger and bigger. It's 900 pages and it's this. Because he was Francis. Where's the best place for people to keep up with you and all your work? Yeah, basically, I mean, the obvious place is, is, is that the, the publishing websites, uh, but my publishers, and obviously, dreaded Amazon is very good to keep track of the books. I have a Substack, uh, which I've, I've neglected lately because I've been finishing my Christopher Nolan book. I, I, I have these kind of one thing you, you read a lot about you know, how publishers you know, or writers should operate in this current world. I just don't know how they do it. You know, they've got a Substack, I've got my Twitter feed, I've got my Instagram, and I try and do all these things. But it's really hard to write a book, watch films, think about a book, and do all your social media at the same time and then write blogs. Um, but I do have a Substack, which you can find. It's, it's on my Amazon page. And I will update it. It's a little bit out of date at the moment. Uh, I want to write something about Nightmare Alley, and I want to do that soon and put that on there because obviously I did look like Guillermo, and I should do a, a few other bits and pieces for it. So, um, yeah, uh, there's that. And um, if you're in the UK or you can want to, I, I do a, a Monday night radio show with Times Radio, which to talk about new releases. And for those who know, I, I do a television documentary series uh, called Discovering Film 
which does that you can get them in America, uh, mainly it's UK and Europe, in which we do the history of you know, sort of little units. We do great actors and, and great stars uh, with me and a few other talking heads, which is great fun. We've been doing James Cameron and Christopher Nolan lately. And they all get packaged. And so you can find me there as well. So uh, Renaissance man, many different things going on at the same time and a lot of chaos as well in my life. Ian, thank you so much for your time. This was great. No, absolute pleasure. It's, it's, it's great. It's always lovely to, to have someone to, to geek out with for a little bit, you know, because most of my friends are like, oh, God, he's going to talk about films again. Yeah. So I, I love to be able to just talk about films without worrying about it. Mm-hmm.